As I lay there thinking of my vision, I could see it all again and feel the meaning with a part of me, like a strange power glowing in my body. But when the part of me that talks would try to make words for the meaning, it would be like fog and get away from me. Black Elk. This will be a solo cast. This is something I've been meaning to do for a while and I'm looking forward to setting out the tone of things to come. To set out the things that we care about, to give an idea of what we want to achieve, the information we want to provide people. Briefly, I want to give some updates on some projects that are happening in the background, some guests that are coming up. Some of the projects are big and expansive for someone who works full time and the process is large. Firstly, the ongoing sitcom that is my technical and sound management has more or less finally been resolved. I hope you can tell the difference. Coming up, we have Harry Oldmeadow. He's coming back to talk about the nativist religions of the noble red man, Lakota medicine man, Black Elk. Mark Stavish, a cult writer and director of the Hermetic Institute and esoteric practitioner, Someone I've drawn a lot of information from in the past with his excellent publications on complex occult matters. We'll be talking about some of the darker areas of Western occultism. Author Christopher Beckwith, we're going to be talking about something close to mine and I'm sure all of your hearts. That is the philosophy of the Scythians and how this may have influenced the sage of the Scythians, Shakyamuni, otherwise known as the historical Buddha and his Indo-Aryan religion. Aside from this, I have about 15 more guests. I'm in the process of recording and setting up. So prior to the end of the year, it's going to be a busy period. Finally, the major project I'm attacking at the moment in the background is to release a full suite of specialized guided meditations. It is the topic of today's podcast and I wanted to give it some attention and context. It was inspired by recordings I'd made in the past for my own use, something I got a lot of benefit from initially, simply to memorize elements and other details required for visualization, which can be hard to focus on and manage, particularly for an overstimulated Western mind. What I've decided to do is to get some stuff professionally recorded and mixed. I don't have a strict timeline. I'm more concerned about getting it right and making sure the quality is high. The content will be focusing primarily on the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, something I've blogged on in detail. There are many expensive courses and all kinds of rubbish available out there from what I've seen, and there's no reason to create more than that. There's also no reason with a bit of help you can't vastly improve your practice by yourself with a bit of assistance, which I'm intending to provide for people Everyone in this insane world can benefit from opening themselves to awareness. It doesn't matter what religion you are, there is nothing denominational about bodily awareness and mindfulness. So as I progress through this task in my spare time, I will be giving updates accordingly. So look out for them. This leads into what I want to talk about today. I want to start with a quote from Arthur Schopenhauer in his book, Volume 1, The World as Will and Representation. 
We remember from the second book that in the whole of nature, on all the levels of objectification of the will, there must be a constant struggle between the individuals of all species. And this expressed an inner conflict within the will to life. Like all other phenomena, this is presented with greater clarity and can be deciphered more thoroughly on the highest level of objectification. To this end, we now want to trace the source of egoism, the starting point for all struggle. The reason I want to engage in this project is that I believe an important requirement has developed. There is a split in man, a kind of schizophrenia. I've seen it in myself, I'm sure most of us can. I believe the primary influence is man being split from what he really is. Many shrinks and philosophers, many religious figures have spoken about this more eloquently than I am able. I do accept its truth. This seems to create an acute paucity of spirit and body for those trapped in the modern age. In prior times, I'm sure it was very similar. We've probably only seen it a few times in recorded history. And we now possess nothing but legends and artworks to inform us of their superior mindset and way of living. Nevertheless, we inhabit increasingly a reign of quantity, a place of subcorporeal forms, a reign of mental constructs, and increasing complexity, layers of complexity and misconception built one upon another. I can feel it getting heavier and heavier more and more rapidly. Modernity, with its attack dog, progressivism, heaps unanswered violence upon the servile and sleeping masses of mankind. They seem to be more than willing to bear the abuse. Both sides of the coin are maddening to someone who is even somewhat awake. It is easy to be overcome with hopelessness and delusion. Delusion seems to be the order of the day for most as we try to think or talk our way out of things, to educate our way out. Think about the billions of dollars spent on education and the destitute failure of Western civilization, at least right now. I know now that there is something missing. There is no focus on the body and its powerful drives no focus on our biology. A decadent civilization focuses solely on subverting those drives and commoditizing them. It seeks only comfort and appeals to our basest desire for laziness. As Sri Rajneesh once said on a lecture on Zen, a prison is a prison. It could be made out of diamonds and gold, yet if it is of mind, it remains a prison. Is there some way out of this? Is there even the opportunity for a temporary respite? I think there is. It does not lie in the use of words or philosophy as many think, though they remain integral and useful. You are a body also. Thinking can rarely change a compulsion, at least not in the way that you think, 
and not without an intervention of someone who has undergone a process themselves. With some guidance, they may be able to help you. Many I see sloped, sad figures drowning in SSRIs and video games, many dutifully doing what they are bred or told they must do. As Nietzsche termed them, the last man. A creature being bred by those parasitic psychopaths that live off the mass of mankind. To borrow from Nietzsche, quote, Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer give birth to a star. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming. He that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? Thus asks the last man and blinks. The earth has become small and it hops on the last man who makes everything small. His race is ineradicable as a flea. The last man lives longest. We have invented happiness, say the last men, and they blink. They have left the regions where it is hard to live, for one needs warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs against him, for one needs warmth. One still works, for work is a form of entertainment, but one is careful lest the entertainment be too harrowing. One no longer becomes poor or rich. Both require too much exhortation. Who still wants to rule? Who obey? Both require too much exertion. No shepherd and one herd. Everyone wants the same. Everybody is the same. Whoever feels different goes voluntarily into a madhouse. Formerly the world was mad, say the most refined, and they blink. One has one's little pleasure for the day and one's little pleasure for the night, but one has a regard for health. We have invented happiness, say the last men, and they blink. Amongst the most offensive and destructive of their habits is that of turning their disease, their weakness, and inertia of spirit into a virtue. Their leaders are visibly rigid and present themselves without any sense of organic vitality. They exist merely as sordid wax figurines. Truly, the people have the leadership they deserve. Parasites that feast off the waste of energies of the youth and thrust them into frenzied wars for profit without regard for admission of noble expansion, setting a Faustian bargain that their desire for knowledge and idealism should be necessarily transmuted into self-becoming and instead into a consumerist debt battery. And to phenotype of elite games, they blink. And finally, of course, selling this last man their wares in the marketplace of indulgences products of false hope and profit for material salvation. Comfort. He blinks. The primary weapon in their arsenal, other than big finance, is the idea of progressivism. A guest of mine, Harry Oldmeadow, has surmised this most effectively, the shortcomings of modernity and its cancerous growths. 
the Somme, Auschwitz, Hiroshima, serial killers, the Gulag, Chernobyl, 50 million plus refugees worldwide today, environmental devastation, terrorism, Pol Pot, Bhopal, pornography as global mega business, chemical and biological weapons. Nonetheless, the idea of progress is one of the most potent shibboleths in modernity. It comes dressed in many alluring guises, often hand in hand with its shady accomplice, evolutionism, and finds applications in many fields. So pervasive is this idea in the modern climate, so much taken for granted that it has become almost invisible, rather like the smog to which urban dwellers have become inured. No doubt the unprecedented barbarisms of the 20th century have caused some disenchantment, but the tenacity of this idea is remarkable. Progress has a long and sordid pedigree in Western thought, and many brutalities and infamies have been justified in its name. To mention just one, we might adduce the extirpation of the nomadic cultures, one of the most appalling vandalisms of the last centuries. Cain's murder of Abel repeats itself on a vast scale. The idea of progress is modernity's siren song, luring the ways of the past to their destruction. But it is not my purpose to unravel this dark history, nor to analyze the ways in which the pseudo-myth of progress contaminates almost all aspects of modern thought. In the first instance, I want to focus on an idea which stands at radical odds with it, tradition, unquote. It seems to be through these mechanisms that the urge to create and live a joyful life is nullified in the youth. Ubiquitous decadence and powerful language play effectively create a thick shroud of blackened smoke blanketing from sight all primordial urges towards the pursuit of space and the freedom of consequent expression of internal vitality, the urge of the youth to expand and create. In essence, the game has been rigged. Instead, the potentially powerful are in inducted into something of a fugue state, a searing masochism of spirit, while the old, crooked, those of contorted spirit, feast upon the vitality of a neutered, though potentially powerful youth. Just look at our billionaires. Just look at Bill Gates, Facebook, Bezos, amongst every other leader that leads us today, apparently. And tell me that these cretins should be leading anyone at all. This exquisite machinery of control is most effective against young men whom within them hold the greatest potential for spiritual and physical renewal of the world around them. This has always been the case and always will be until there is such a time that it is finally subverted in a technocratic supremacy of some kind. Academia has become a center for mere ideological homogenization, as we all know. No longer do the learned and superior of mind seek to uncover the majesty of creation and to understand it, or to ruthlessly take apart the actions and thinking of those who have come before. 
Instead, these are now the institutions of the inferior mind, who seek to subvert and conceal truth, whom insist on certainty in place of wonderment, whom seek progress and thwart as best they can the universal cycles of destruction and rebirth. There are obvious consequences in having ideas about ideas about ideas, and that's what academia clearly has become. It leads to clouding of obvious truths of life. Many have become so hopelessly enamored in the ideology of the progressivist utopia that obvious statements or honest investigations of biology are seen as heretical. Differences that should be celebrated are covered up by the intolerance of the modern priesthood of secular authority. Of secular authoritarianism. More than anything else, the last man fears truth. He blinks. There is one thing that I've become more than anything else extremely skeptical of recently, and that is the individuals that sell us utopias. There is a danger in the human being's capacity for language and symbol use. Both these abilities are tools of immense power. Few know how to wield them properly, and those that do seem not to have good aims. This being said, woe be unto the man who dare point these things out to the hoi polloi and awaken them from their deep slumber. For it is in this powerful sleep that a state of existential terror is covered and that the prima facie of progress emerges, the end of history in which cycles have apparently ceased. For it appears that in the cutting away of the dead wood, it is a process most feared by the mass man, by the last man. He blinks. It is obvious to our clique that Everything has its origin, birth, maturity, and death. This process should be seen as a happy one, a necessary one. It is not a black pill, it is the opposite. Here I stake a bold claim. The Maha Satipatthana Sutta, or the Great Frames of Reference, provides the solar man, the Buddhist and the non-Buddhist alike, a very accessible method of sensory discipline. It foremost provides us with the possibility of remaining aware, to progressively make ourselves available to the awareness that is accessible to us at all times, should we be able to see it. To reduce the power of our emotional brain centers and at once to utilize them to their maximum power. Forcing an awakening of the deadened sensations of the body and the hidden mechanisms of the mind, bringing them into acute focus and control. Through work, we come to intimately understand those things that we are not aware of. We are offered the chance of physical and spiritual reanimation. We give ourselves the chance to move beyond the existence as a mere extended phenotype of the Leviathan, the extended phenotype of the games of elites and powerful interests. 
utilizing as a primary means the vitality and purifying energies of breath and the scope of our focused awareness, we become bringers of the magnifying glass. Finally, a note on self-criticism, which is part of the course when undertaking exercises in self-awareness. Many will contend this is a nihilism in some way. For sure, excessive self-criticism can be, but honest and real, yet gentle assessment is not. Part of this is in fact accepting yourself. It is in fact the deepest expression of will, a will to create inwardly and outwardly, shedding old skins. It only really hurts when you take yourself too seriously. Take a step back, see yourself as a work of art. And simply remove, like dead wood, that of which is no longer useful to you. This is a trick, ironically perhaps, not to take it personally, but to take the work seriously. We can experience induced shocks from this work, and it is from this shock that our awareness grows, that we grow. We gain insight into the delusions we embraced for so long as coping mechanisms, most of which we induced in our childhood before we knew any better. We become aware of sensations and breath, thought patterns. We can prune them. Finally, who better to quote than Nietzsche, who, as is his way, so powerfully summarizes this sentiment in the gay science by way of the philosophical hammer. Those same moments that Uspensky, in particular, referred to as the shock, where criticisms of the self and thus self-awareness is organically experienced through the moment of awareness. Quote, in favor of criticism. Now something appears to you as an error, which you formerly loved as truth or probability. Believe that your reason has thereby won a victory. But perhaps your error was at that time when you were someone else. You are always someone different. As necessary for you as all your present truths just like a skin that concealed and veiled many things that you still may not see, it is that your new life has killed that opinion of you, not your reason. You no longer need it, and now it collapses and the unreason crawls out like a worm into the light. When we practice criticism, it is nothing arbitrary and impersonal. It is at least every often a proof that there are driving forces alive within us which are throwing off a husk. We deny because something in us will live and affirm itself, something that perhaps we do not yet know and do not yet see. This is all in favor of criticism. That's where I'll end it today. I have several essays on this topic with more details. Perhaps you can go and check it out. With these aims in mind, I'm working hard to actualize this vision for the benefit of those stuck, trying as best I can in a non-delusional, pragmatic way to introduce tools to people to try and break free, mostly of their own self-limitations. Until next week.